welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. In today's episode, we have a special guest, Scott Miller, an anarchist Quaker preacher who works out of Michigan and is the author of the book, Gospel of the Absurd. In this conversation, we talk about outreach, the damage of white flight, the problems of the church, and the role of violence in religion. This was a unique conversation, and I really thought it would be a great pairing with our most recent discussion with Kathy Main. So take a listen and let us know what you think. So Scott, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners. Yeah, uh, currently uh, my spouse and I and uh, the, the one child that we have left living at home uh, run a small farm. It's a... Uh, Mostly a raw milk operation. We have sheep. Um, generally, we have hogs, chicken, turkey, eggs. And um, my wife is a, a midwife, my spouse. And uh, so she's kind of been supporting uh, the farm, which is being operated under with the intention of um, trying to identify a means of engaging in reparations, uh, relationships, uh, educating folks on um, how food, uh, especially meat and dairy products, get from the farm to the table, um, identifying different ways to engage in economics of um, equity. And uh, also learning to meet our neighbors. We live in a very, very politically conservative uh, area of the state and the nation. Um, uh, our, uh, our sheriff is the one who appeared on stage at a rally uh, uh, with the folks who tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of Trump banners around. And when we had a... Uh, uh, when some of the youth in this area held a unity rally, they knew better than to call it Black Lives Matter. Uh, we were surrounded by 150 heavily armed uh, males with full body armor and um, assault style or military style uh, weapons. I've uh, got a fairly good education. I have a uh, history in my past of uh, substance abuse, crack cocaine and alcohol use homeless for a while. Um, I was in Detroit. I was part of the fifth state collective, or at least on the periphery of that. I've engaged in thing, everything from doing uh, newsletters and fanzines to pirate radio stations, kind of the political spectrum. Even We even had a, a anarchist baseball team in the corridor for a while that competed That's awesome. in a Detroit uh, semi-professional league. So um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm fairly well educated. I, I uh, am a clinician, primarily doing substance abuse work and trauma work. Could you talk a little bit about your religious framework as part of this? Sure. Uh, I was raised uh, in a Lutheran church, very conservative Lutheran church in Flint, and uh, maintained some sort of religious belief or uh, religious framework of reference. Uh, until I was about 17, and as soon as it, it was uh, so so shaky a foundation that when I was challenged in conversations by uh, different activists, um, it was easy for me to step away from the church and engage myself wholeheartedly in radical political action. Uh, there was more of an ethic amongst those who did not believe uh, in any God or uh, at least didn't allow it to concern their decision-making process. Um, it, it was it was far easier to make sense and give meaning to injustices and uh, actually act upon that. I grew up in a church that really never embodied any kind of faith other than engagement and communion. And now I uh, um, uh, uh, consider myself a Quaker. I'm a constituent of the Religious Society of Friends have been for nearly 23 years now, uh, as is my, my spouse. And all of our children were raised among friends. We uh, are part of a, a uh, plain sect of the friends. So we continue to wear uh, the plain uh, dress clothing. We continue to keep our heads covered, um, go without television or things like that. Uh, obviously, we're not against electronics or electricity. 
and I found that uh, to provide a, a really good um, space to engage in sort of a relational communion um, and shared space with attention towards the spiritual or metaphysical and also providing a history of prophetic voices and activism that um, allowed me to make sense not only of uh, my past behaviors or moral vision, but make better sense of uh, different religious texts. Uh, I went to seminary uh, and I'm currently uh, uh, at Chicago Theological Seminary doing doctor work on cultural criticism and uh, Christian ethics. And one of the reasons that uh, I chose voluntarily to re-engage with um, the uh, biblical stories of Jesus in the early church was, first of all, I was familiar with them. So it wasn't a stretch to go back to that as a narrative through which to identify what was important to me morally and what kind of ethic would allow me to carry that moral vision out and make it credible. And number two, um, you know, growing up uh, in uh, Christian spaces, places, uh, I, I've gotten a lot of privilege. Uh, I've had access to a lot of privilege uh, because uh, the church and church members have had a privileged place in American history, American economics, uh, education. And uh, as troubled as the church is and as racist as the church has become, just to walk away from that without being accountable, yet benefiting uh, from the privileges of growing up in that, uh, seemed to me rather a cheap way out. So I, one of my theological purposes uh, of re-engaging with the faith uh, was to explore and hold accountable uh, the historical racism and white supremacy that's uh, been part of the American Christian church. Sure. I think a lot of our listeners are probably not religious, so they're probably a little confused as to why uh, we're having this conversation, but I think there's a lot of insights, even as somebody who might identify as an atheist might get from these conversations and how we can build these mutual networks into conservative areas, which is something you are working with. So I want to talk a little bit about some of your research. One of the things you've written about in particular is your work in places like Flint and the role of churches and white flight into creating some of these um, challenges of building community within these communities, essentially. So could you talk a little bit about this and how it's really instrumental in understanding what you're talking about as these shortfalls of modern Christianity? When I went to Flint to uh, uh, volunteer during the water crisis, my son and I spent about nine months living in Flint um, to help out at a uh, another um, another peace church there, Church of the Brethren in Flint. And it happened to be in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Flint, right down the street from the little church that I went to. And uh, there were several times where I went down to that church and every day other than Sunday, it was closed and it was locked and there was a lot of security apparatus. And uh, so when I had asked around, uh, because my uncle uh, had still was the most recent family member that attended that church. And everyone told me that the church had not changed since I'd been there. It, it was still entirely white. It was uh, still a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran church. Um, and as a matter of fact, only recently had it changed pastor, uh, pastors uh, from the pastor that had baptized me as an infant there. His son, who was a friend of mine, had gone on to a larger church in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin Synod Church. So not only had the um, church not changed, the people who had uh, run the church apparently had not changed at all, even though the entire neighborhood had changed around them. And it, and it had seemed to me without any evidence other than looking at exactly the same building and same people going in there that were going in there years ago, uh, that that church had, had failed miserably at even attempting to become part of that community. 
it was the same thing that I had experienced in Detroit where uh, White churches existed as commuter commuter churches until Grandpa and Grandma died, and then I guess God left the building. Um, and those churches were either sold to other denominations uh, or uh, became black churches under the guise of a different name. Uh, but the white people stopped coming into town as soon as Grandpa and Grandma died. They had no interest in sharing anything, any aspect of faith, other than potentially profiting or even getting rid of the building so as not to lose more money. Um, and I saw right there that, that American Christendom, uh, the church as we know it has become a, a failure. Um, not only is it a failure, it works against everything that any student of the text uh, through the lenses of historical and literary criticism uh, would easily see the text saying, which is those with privilege give up their privilege in order to help others thrive. And the white church has always held on to privilege and it has engaged, uh, it's a failure because it has engaged not in acts of faith or in ethics of faith, but an acts and an ethic of power and control that has uh, been more interested in maintaining political advantage than it has actually even resembling any kind of uh, place where faith is embodied. The best thing that could happen to this thing called Christianity is that the church dies. Wow. I think you're the first religious person I've ever heard say that. Well, the, the Christian story is one of resurrection. It's one of seeing that there are things worth dying for and that there are certain truths that must be told to power and those in authority. And in the text, it's not just Rome. It is also the temple authorities. It is those uh, folks who identified as faithful Jews yet used power and control to enrich themselves through the religious apparatus and the temple apparatus, you know, and, and such people end up crucified. Um, the whole story, whether, you know, whether Jesus is God or not, is a matter of, of how someone reads the text or what they're willing to believe. Uh, you know, but if you say you believe in the resurrection of life, then you better fucking act like it. <laughs> if yeah. you say it's true, I've really got no reason to sacrifice anything because you say that such a thing is true, but it doesn't benefit anyone but you. Yeah, that's interesting. So one of the things that you talked about in your experiences in Flint and around this idea of the church is the necessity of middle class people to move into poorer neighborhoods in order to have some ownership of or accountability is probably the right term for the conditions of things like in this case like white flight um, whereas if middle class people are affected by it then there'll be meaningful change to improve the lives of the people around them whereas it's much easier when you don't live in those conditions to marginalize or ignore them could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe a little bit of how that aligns with your politics as well yeah and I, thanks uh, Andy, and I'd like to introduce that with a little story. I spoke to a group of middle-class individuals who were interested in my book, and as we were working through it, I, I talked about, um, you know, they were talking about wanting to raise families in safe places, which is something that only people of privilege can do, uh, somehow basically predict that they're not going to be broken into or victims of violent crime or whatever, but, um, those predictions are, are always more nuanced than we'd like to consider. But at any rate, one individual said, well, if I, move, if I moved into one of those neighborhoods, the property values would rise and, and all the poor people would have to move, which is just like the most pompous thing that I could imagine anyone saying, as though their ability to you know, renew their house or rebuild or renovate uh, is so remarkable that their presence alone would drive poor people away because tax values would go up. And of course, that's not what he was saying. He meant to say that if we gentrify neighborhoods, that's what happens. Well, gentrification doesn't have to, to occur. 
Uh, you know, you part of privilege is having the financial resources to make everything just right around your house. Um, and again, connecting faith, Andy, is that part of the story of the cross and this theological Jesus is that, you know, if, if Jesus wants to do something, he can, because he's fucking God and he can hit a hole in one every time. Well, if that's true, Jesus chose not to hit a hole in one every time, but give his fucking clubs over to people who could use them and the golf course gets turned into food for people who can't eat. So it's the concept that if I have privilege, I have a right to these things, but my rights are not as important as my obligations to the human condition. And that's what love is. And so in the texts and in ancient uh, Greek, um, the ancient Greek language, uh, there are four kinds of love, you know, philos, family love or brotherly love, uh, however. And then there's eros, which is uh, intimacy. There's agape, which is selfless love. And there's porneia, which is love of self. But in the Greek and as an ethic, love is not a feeling. When you feel warm and fuzzy, you're feeling warm and fuzzy. That doesn't mean you're in love. Love is the voluntary, voluntary uh, suppression or eschewing of one's privilege or rights to the benefit of someone who doesn't have those resources. Family love is when you have kids, you don't go golfing on the weekends, you stay home and play with your kids. Uh, eros, okay, my wife's going to orgasm before I do. Agape love, throwing yourself on a grenade in a foxhole. Um, porneia is like, and I'm not against pornography, but porneia is experiencing the feelings of physical intimacy without having to sacrifice it. You don't even have to meet people. You can watch it on, on the TV. So there's also this idea of eros too, uh, which is community. Intimacy with community is giving up one's privileges or giving up some of their resources in order that those without resources in their community may thrive. And so that's part of the, the gospel text. That's part of the Christian text. If Jesus can hit a hole in one every time or turn sugar into cocaine, well, he didn't do that shit. He chose the hard way of being a normal human being and, right, instead of uh, spending money on food for people, they shared their own resources. And so to think that because you move to a neighborhood, you're going to, that naturally you're going to gentrify it. No, people will resent you coming there at first because you've provided no evidence that you have their interests in mind. You've got to provide evidence that you have some love of humanity, that you have the interests of others in mind, and you don't have five TVs that you're going to shoot someone in the fucking face if they try to steal it. Don't have anything to steal in your house. If you're going to defend a TV by taking someone's fucking life, then don't have a television. You know, as somebody that's white presenting, I've always lived in marginalized areas pretty much until recently. And trying to to do what you're talking about has always been like a challenge for me of like I, I can pass as a middle class white guy. And if I move into poorer neighborhoods, am I having a negative effect in trying to balance those things out of like becoming a part of that community versus moving in and trying to change that community? Or at least change it for what I what middle class people might consider for the better and trying to deal with that idea of gentrification. Um, I, I think it's easy to um, to do exactly what you're saying, like paint in broad strokes that any person moving into an urban space that's poorer could be taken as gentrification. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I want to talk about this term you use a lot, which is the professional empath, because I feel like that overlaps a lot with uh, that mindset. Could you talk a little bit about what a professional empath is and how that relates to this idea of like white flight and uh, our inability to build those authentic community relationships in places like what we're talking about? 
Right. So I uh, am a licensed uh, master social worker in Michigan. I usually do groups. So it, it's difficult for me to hold jobs uh, quite often because I'm, well, uh, uh, I still identify as an anarchist, whatever that might be. Um, and but I also as an empath, you know, I, I see, for instance, when I go into a group and see out of 30 people or 35 people, two persons of color, automatically there's evidence that there's economic injustice in the world. Um, but also that there's two people there whose experience is one that most of the other people in that group won't know. And I've often said, I have absolutely no idea, nor will I ever, uh, what it means to be a person of color in the United States. But I've observed enough living in Detroit and Flint for most of my life living in those places to where the fact of institutionalized racism and marginalization and um, sometimes just, uh, you know, the hoping or wishing away of persons of color entirely is a fact. So understanding that means that as a white and a professional, that that empathy must carry over into the way that I, that I present to whole groups. In other words, identifying the importance of teaching people what they believe to be true must be challenged in order that they can empathize with the other. A lot of us think that we are victims or targets of unjust behaviors. And a lot of us really have no clue of what that means. There are lots of women who have been uh, troubled by substance abuse who have been victimized. There are African-Americans who have been victimized just by the fact of racism. There are some white folks who, white males who have been victimized because of trauma, uh, violent crime and things like that. But for the most part, they're un still unable, people are still unable to empathize with others who have experienced difficulties. And I have found that people actually resent when others get help. That that's never made sense of me. So part of this mutual aid building, even as a professional, is instead of a counselor um, trying to discuss empathy with people shows how important it is to voluntarily help others, but also to receive help and support rather than do it all alone. Uh, because if you can get a bunch of addicts to work together, not just to stop using, but then to say, oh, and I can help others by challenging the way that challenging how they think about things is true. Well, I think that's the core of empathy is not only understanding why people think differently, but being able to challenge what they're thinking and initiate uh, a relationship around those discussions. With some people, that's impossible. Generally, that's impossible with people who have experienced some sort of power and control over other people, whether it's been political, social, or just physical dominance. Those people are uninterested in empathy because they will have to give up the only thing they have. But reading Bell Hooks, and I've been able to see uh, the life of Jesus much more clearly by reading Bell Hooks, is identifying that one has to be with people in order to empathize with them. And that these relationships can't be one of agenda. I don't move into a neighborhood trying to make it better. That, that's just not the point. I don't go to Flint trying to help those people find, you know, the people who have Jesus don't need me to tell them about Jesus. They need to, right, Scott, we need you to distribute this water. Okay, we need you because you've been to drug houses before to make sure the kid over there where they're selling weed and they won't come out has diapers and oranges and spinach. Okay, right. So we, why do we always think that we're there to fucking help people? Why can't we just be with? Relationship building is not being, it, my agenda is not to be there for you. I got to know you first. 
and I need to know you with you presenting on your terms. Yeah, and that's like the, the framework of mutual aid. Yes, right. So if I'm trying to help someone by teaching them about revolution, I've already made up my mind that they don't want to engage in the capital, the benefits of capitalism. I'm not even listening when they say they want to, right? When they say they want to own their own business. As a matter of fact, in my mind, I'm already challenging that. And that lacks empathy. That, that is having an agenda of change that, right? It, it's just how white folks think, Andy. When actually anarchy is, is about one of the most privileged political identities one can have. Yeah, I, it's it's true. And I, you know, one of the things I, I feel like I'm constantly arguing with people about is that like part of for me being an anarchist is that there are people that are not anarchists mm -hmm. and like that's OK and there should be space for them as opposed to being like groupthink, like we all have to have these same political opinions, you know, as long as whatever you feel or believe doesn't impact other people negatively then you should have every right to be able to have those opinions and beliefs. And I think that's really challenging for a lot of people on the left, where we want everyone to be on the same page, whether that's for critical mass to make change or whatever it might be. But that's, that's where I get really caught up where it's like, oh, you want to work with people who don't feel the same way or, um, you know, whatever it might be, there's, there's a lot of terms that get thrown out that I think are utilized as a way to shut down any conversations across politics like the average trump conservative is not looking to kill people uh and i think my personal like long-term job with this podcast is the ecological component but also and growing food but also trying to challenge some of those stereotypes that you know people aren't inherently bad and just because they're not an anarchist doesn't mean that they're bad or whatever it might be even Nasdaq called himself an, an anarchist. And if you've ever read his book, uh, Utopia, Anarchy and Utopia, as a response to Rawls, I mean, he's mostly a conservative libertarian. People, people would love him. So the, the, the concept of anarchy is almost like postmodernism. You're better off not trying to describe it. But like, okay, I will voluntarily associate with this group of people. And, you know, once I voluntarily associate with people, I'm, I should be acquiescing to the engaging in some sort of prescribed ethic or behavior until I can no longer do that. And then I leave. And I think that that people somehow confuse um being an independent moral agent with always having to be right and accountable for oneself. Well, you do have to be accountable for yourself, but you're also accountable not only for the people that you're with, but if, if you choose to be a Quaker, you're accountable for a history of Quakerism, right? We not only did the Underground Railroad, we owned slaves. We not only had Penn's good treaties, we ran Indian schools and cut hair. <laughs> you know, you don't get to pick. You can't just join. Yeah. It, it, and this whole thing, Americans are consumers and we pick and choose not just religion, but our anarchy. And we'll develop as many truths as we need to, uh, to win the debates with other people in our lives. Yeah. We'll defend anarchism like, like we'll defend our drinking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, now this conversation has been primarily focused on urban spaces, but I want to circle back to some of the work you're doing, particularly in those rural spaces, like where your farm is, and uh, talk a little bit about doing outreach within those conservative spaces, which I think, again, we, we spend our time focusing on, in my experience, at least, you know, the, the liberal to leftist spectrum of like bringing people along with you know the hope that people become disenfranchised with the de democratic party democratic socialists and so on and so on but i personally tend to find that there's actually a lot more common ground with conservatives in that space trying to convert them to seeing more of, at least from my perspective an anarchist perspective of um finding common ground 
So I'm, I'm interested in what you've been doing in those rural spaces to either de-radicalize folks or to just get them exposure to some of these newer ideas. And, and it's exposure. Um, there are a lot of people in Michigan. There is a, uh, a, a Trump leaning candidate for governor and I deliver uh, raw milk to a number of people who consider themselves to be intentionalists. Uh, living on the fringes of what other people, you know, for health reasons, for back to back to nature reasons, whatever. They're very conservative. And so I meet and talk with these people uh, about raw milk and, you know, politics never comes up. Actually, religion doesn't either, even though everyone around is obviously religious around here to one another. Um, but it, it's not just getting to know, but there has to be some sense of trusting that someone so entirely different from you can come onto your property and provide you with sustenance. There's people that um, have had trouble with nursing uh, their children. And they've been, you know, whether I think it's good for the babies or not, I know it won't hurt them. I don't think there's any health qualities to raw milk. It's cow's milk. It's for cows. It's not a human staple. Now, my wife is convinced there are like good health reasons to drink raw milk. And so are other people. The people have used my milk to right, provide that's the, the healthiest resource for their children. Building relationships just by being there and being a neighbor. And also, like, if you don't don't have money, you don't have to pay. Um, but it's not just that, you know, there, there, uh, there's neighbors who are from a very conservative denomination who worked actively in California against, uh, same-sex marriage out there years back. And also there, there's been a history of racism in their denomination. They have a number of children. And, um, when COVID hit, uh, I just made assumptions that things changed for people whether better or worse. So we made sure, because my wife had talked to her once, and yeah, we go through six dozen eggs a week. So we started providing eggs. And then their daughters came over and started the eggs that they picked up. They get, give half to the farm and they take some home. Well, their children asked if they could learn to milk cows. So now we've got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old that come over three nights a week and they milk cows. And they... Right. I, I don't talk politics or religion with a 10 year old and eight year old, but they eat with our family. They see our living room. They see books about Malcolm X and Ella Baker. Uh, they see all sorts of they see pictures of Jesus washing the feet of Osama bin Laden. Um, so the children are exposed and the parents know this and the parents trust us enough despite differences not just to provide them food, but they entrust their daughters with a nasty, toothless-looking old farmer that he's going to teach their daughters a skill and that everyone's going to benefit and there's no strings attached. And in that process, uh, there's a humanizing effect. There absolutely I think is. is so important um, as, as we try to, especially in the age of the internet, um, where it's very easy to paint people as these two-dimensional evil characters when that's almost never the case. And Andy, I want to share this with you. There's a very close friend of ours, a very dear friend, and she's a leftist. Uh, she votes, you know, Democrat, but she, she, I just love her. She's very smart. Always worked with urban uh, high school kids as a teacher. Husband's a teacher. She's helped us out with farm and, and all sorts of things. But helped us plan an orchard because she, and uh, when it's hog butchering time, she comes over to help. Well, because I was going to give a hog to the neighbor that I just talked about, uh, I asked that he come over and help butcher it um, because I'd never met the father over there. Um, and, you know, our other neighbor just probably wasn't interested in it, but we're all working together. And this is the first time he's ever had uh, opportunity with his neighbors to talk about his missions overseas in, in Eastern Asia. And he was talking about how they butcher over there. And he was really just telling his story and what she saw, what our 
other neighbors saw it as was him trying to sort of, she saw it as him sort of dominating the conversation and he couldn't he couldn't butcher worth a damn right what i saw it as somebody who's only comfortable when they get to tell a little bit of their story and they found a receptive audience in me and my wife and so he felt comfortable being himself now we're not friends we don't we're not hanging out. We don't drink beers together. We don't invite each other to church. But these are people that, again, I have a relationship with their family. And, you know, he's been over here. And his two daughters come over to this crazy Quaker's house and milk cows three times a week. Um, and so that's being a professional empath. Sometimes people are just really uncomfortable with who they are or they are worried that other people are going to judge them. Again, some people are power and control people. They like to dominate. We will not reach those people. Uh, and that's unfortunate. And I can be a pretty rough guy. I can speak assertively or aggressively when I need to speak and, and take care of myself. But there are other people who will welcome the chance to talk. And, you know, once they start talking about politics or religion in a manner that starts to impose control or dominance in the environment, it's real easy for people to say, you know, I'm just kind of getting, I enjoy listening to you, getting to know you. I'd rather not talk about that because I think we're probably going to disagree on a lot of stuff. Most people take that cue, even here. The people who don't are the people out there making citizens arrests. And, you know, then instead of making friends with my neighbors, I must love my enemies. I got to be the one that gets in the way of that citizen's arrest. You're going to have to take me instead of them. You will have to hurt yep. me instead of them. I'm 300 pounds. You can pick on me. Yeah, and and again, that's where religion informs the ethic. I don't expect other people to do that. Uh, people will do what they have to do, and I hope they do. I just hope they're accountable to for it. I'm all for throwing bricks through windows. I just want you to go to court, tell the court why, tell them that the motherfucker deserved it, and if you're going to throw me in jail, throw me in jail. Fuck you. How hard is that to do? Sure. I, I think one of the things that becomes a challenge in this conversation that we're talking about is for a lot of folks, it's really hard to have a lot of sympathy for white, middle-aged, middle, you know, let's call them middle class, um, especially men here in the United States. And I think a little bit, I think a little bit of this is tied to this lack of sympathy and this lack of understanding of identity. Again, that, that two-dimensionality that I think is really common in the the twitter instagram whatever era um so could you talk a little bit about um building i i would guess you could call it like radical sympathy or um i guess you're as somebody that's so interested in something like reparations where working with this this group of people um is important um i can empathize with people i might sympathize with their plight but then Right. You, if you need resources to make changes, I can try to if you ask me, I'll provide those. Uh, I can listen to you. Tell me about what your problem is. I can help you problem solve if you like. But if you're just going to sit there and bitch and call yourself a victim, I, I got no sympathy. So I got no sympathy for middle aged white class Americans like me. I, I pretty much got no time for them. Now, if they're going to be relational and speak and tell me why they feel victimized by politics sometimes, I can listen to that and I don't even have to correct it. Um, right? I can just be a listener and I don't even have to be a friend. I can just be human to do that. But I would not suggest sympathizing with them. We've got businessmen in this county who think because of the tax load or whatever, uh, Really, they can't even make themselves clear. They can't articulate what they're a victim of other than they don't like the way things are. So they make something up. The election was stolen. See, these aren't stupid people. It doesn't need to be true. They just need a vehicle, a language, a discourse through which to push their agenda. Why would I sympathize with those people? 
So what I would do, what, what you do is ask, why are you really mad? Okay, because you can give all sorts of evidence. And if they're angry, they're not listening to the evidence anyway. They're using it as a means to justify the anger or violence that they're going to engage in. Okay, um, now I can empathize with someone who feels like things ain't going their way. The question is, can I get enough trust to, to where they listen to me say, but, you know, how are you really suffering from this? Uh, who is it? What are you? What is is it that you're losing? Do you feel you're losing dignity? Do you figure that you don't have access to resources? Are you just mad that someone else is getting help and you think it's at your expense? Um, because those things generally aren't true. And either you can build that rapport by empathizing with someone who feels as though they're being marginalized even when they're not. Um, I, I, you know, the only reason people feel like that is because change is passing them by and they don't, they can't comprehend it. And they get angry because they were raised to believe that everything that is happening is wrong and is in violation of their religious faith. That's why the church must die, first of all, because the church keeps propagating the stupid shit. But, you know, you got a choice whether you believe it or not. And so people need to know that they can ask questions and that they can come up with their own answers without television or media. They can think critically. So those communication lines still need to stay open right. with those uh, those groups, those whatever you want to call them, rural Trump voters, white, white, lower middle class, whatever it might be. It has to be the neighborly and individual out here. We don't live in close quarters. Uh, you, we can go to the diner and be friendly with people. Right. Um, but a lot of times those folks are isolating themselves having groups with the, uh, on their own. And, you know, if someone is going to believe in a lie to the point where they avoid social interaction, not only do they not get sympathy, it's impossible for me to empathize with them. I'm not going out of my way seeking to change people. That I'm not, you know what, too many people marry an unhealthy partner thinking that they can change them. I'm not gonna go to a neighbor's and try and talk him out of voting for Trump when I know that he's a racist and uneducated and has a, a, a violent streak in him. Now I'm still his neighbor. I'm still gonna treat him with dignity because that's just what I should do. That's who I want to be. Whether I always am or not, that's who I want to be. As someone who treats others with dignity, you know, and they can't push my buttons. Now, if they go after someone else, I'm obligated to protect that other person. So I, I, I like, I want to talk with, I want to experience a relationship with the so-called Trump voter. But quite honestly, when people explode in, you know, the, um, in vocabularies of racism and homophobia and things, I just need to step back. That's unhealthy for me and everybody else. It, sure. It's difficult learning to be with people, you know, despite who they are. And because it's difficult, you can't force the issue, but you can't give up on it either. And, but see, this is important, Andy, and that's why the faith, you know, plays a role in this. Because my faith uh, has such an ethic embedded into the moral vision, right? The moral vision is that uh, right, we are created for relationships, for mutual aid. One cannot exist alone. Without a creation, there can be no God. You, you just can't have something without another thing. There's no such thing as, as emptiness, Right? There's no such thing as an absence of everything. It can't be. So even for a God to exist, this divine whatever must have something else, anything else, a tree, a universe, a cosmos, whatever. Otherwise, it's just, it's a non-thing. It's not a thing. 
So if we're here, it's for relationship and being in relationship means treating people with dignity and respect, not just when they deserve it, because that's a matter of grace. Now, anyone can have a different moral vision. I'm not trying to say that faith is the only one or even a good one. But I'm suggesting that in, unless you have a way of voluntarily ordering your life according to an intellectual measure or rule of worth of everything around you, that that utilitarian ethic will ultimately result in you needing to win. So, but this, I, the thing that I think comes up a lot now at this point where you've brought up, you know, trying to do this outreach to folks, building essentially networks within your community where there's real relationships. Uh, and then there's obviously this group of folks that don't fall, as you're saying, like people that are racist or homophobic or whatever it might be, that they don't fall into this category of folks that are, I guess you want to call them good people. And then it, the question ultimately comes up about uh, violence versus nonviolence and how we define violence. So there's obviously a lot that we could unpack about things like civil disobedience. But I do want to talk about this idea of the religious church using nonviolence as a, uh, as a tool to allow for the continuation of things like racism, discrimination, and essentially the American caste system. Nonviolence is absolutely uh, a product of racism and perpetuated by racism of white liberals. Nonviolence is not a tool. I mean, it might have been for Martin Luther King. It might have been for Gandhi. I'm not Martin Luther King. I'm not Gandhi. Nonviolence is a commitment to my faith because I read the text and interpret it in a certain way. For me to be in right relationship with uh, this God that is only known to me through the stories of Jesus, nonviolence is the way that I maintain a relationship. It is not moral or immoral to engage in violence. Uh, people have a right. I'm from Detroit, damn it. People have a right to defend themselves. People will come into your house and and take the take your rent money. They'll take your shit. They will people will come into your house and try to use it to sell drugs. Uh, people will commit very violent crimes because they don't like you. People will take advantage of you on the street. If you tell someone that it's immoral for them to defend themselves with a firearm or otherwise, you've never been victimized by violence, but you've probably perpetuated it in some way or another by turning the other way, right, right? Turning your gaze away from it or avoiding living in those situations. So I've got no room for people who say, nonviolence is the moral way to achieve a political or just outcome. There's no evidence that it's anything but uh, a commitment to faith. Um, you know, John Brown was and Bonhoeffer were only necessary because those in the church who profess nonviolence wouldn't sacrifice themselves otherwise. If you say you practice nonviolence and can't harm someone else, you still better be ready to die for justice. Right. Nonviolence is not something for cowards to be able to get away with having an opinion, uh, which seems to be, you know, most of uh, anti-slavery Christians were against violence because they were afraid that white people would be drafted to fight on behalf of slaves. And, you know, what happened when and they didn't want slaves armed because once slaves start start killing white folks, there's going to be hell to pay. But they also uh, didn't want slaves moving north. The, the, the white folks didn't like slavery. John Brown was the only person really that was willing to sit down with, with slaves who were farming the land and uneducated and have his family sit with them and allow them to speak at the table. And John Brown was so frustrated by liberal nonviolence that he raided an armory. But before that, he was a murderer. John Brown was a terrorist. And Bonhoeffer and Brown only happened when the church fails to sacrifice its privilege. So I don't care if you shoot somebody or not. Jesus tells me, don't fucking shoot people. Don't kill them. Okay. okay. Why? Because once you have that, the privilege to give or take life, 
suddenly that allows you to police after the winning. Suddenly it's power, domination, continuation. If you are not willing to sacrifice yourself for justice, then you are only willing to impose it. And that is a system of domination. That's slavery. That is the, that's Maoism. That's Stalinism. Right? But violence is used for just situations all the time. Yeah. In my experiences, and again, I'm not a religious person, and I really wasn't raised a religious person. Uh, Nonviolence is always, I think, synonymous. <laughs> uh, I think it often is synonymous with Christianity or really any major religion. And I, I think, like you're saying, that there's it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than just being nonviolent. That right. nonviolence comes with a certain luxury that folks, a lot of folks, don't have. Right, because you can avoid it. Exactly. People who are nonviolent because they can avoid violence, that's not nonviolence. That's just avoiding accountability. That's avoiding participation. And there are groups that do that too, and they still benefit from militarism. Um, private property is, is a form of violence. But I, I mean, as far as nonviolence goes too, it's contingent. I mean, we kill living things around here quite regularly. And so, um, you know, our children start, if they're going to eat meat, they either engage in killing when they're eight or th they become vegetarians until they're killing meat because you can't just sacrifice. Something cannot be sacrificed without you even understanding what that sacrifice entails. Yeah. Meat just does not show up from Myers on your table. Right. It, it, that's just not something has to suffer and it has to experience murder. And right. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's you know, I, I was a vegetarian for 12 years because I didn't feel that it was okay for myself to kill animals. And then I eventually came, became comfortable with the process. But, you know, that's, like that was always my perspective on it is if I can't do it myself, I don't deserve to be consuming it. And I think, you know, it, that's a really interesting way to integrate this philosophy into a lifestyle and uh, pair it with the, the religious component of it. Now, with your work, are there are you a kind of an island or is there like a lot of folks that have this this pairing of anarchy and quakerism no there's there's liberals out here but there's um there's a few kids i see walking around with crash shirts and things like that and i've actually reached out to them and they don't i don't think they identify anarchism with an with an ethic i think they identify it as a, the music scene or um you know i don't know they haven't told me i, I really shouldn't make assumptions i've seen young adults with the trappings of anarchist symbols, but I have not seen any behaviors um, of community building or voluntary association or mutual aid. There, there are more than enough liberals out here. Um, most of them have, um, most of them are members, if not all of them, are members of the middle class. And while I like them individually and, and even uh, have great deal of fondness for a lot of these these folks. A lot of my friends who are liberals, um, I more or less see them as uh, anathema to the things that I'm trying to, to create. I'm not quite sure that they would ever consider giving up uh, trucks that don't have scratches and nice new uh, housing you know houses in suburb that made all the coyotes and foxes move over onto our property when they were built um you know liberals are what they are they're capitalists or democratic socialists uh who want justice as long as it doesn't interfere with uh, their ability to shop at whole foods well said so i guess i, I do have one question that's kind of peripheral more than kind of the main content we've been covering mm -hmm. but just in your experiences like in the spaces you work what are your thoughts about the future of the left in in, in rural spaces and i guess 
the 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 near future in terms of politics here? Well, um, at first we need to experience the end of this age. The American thing has to collapse, and I don't know when. I'm not predicting when that will happen. I'm not even predicting that Trump is the uh, the final nail in the coffin of liberal democracy. That I just don't know that to be true. Um, but uh, the American empire has to fail. I don't think there can really be any true ethic or mass movement of the radical left until that happens because we've just simply got too much fucking shit that we don't want to get rid of. You know, people want to camp in in the wild for two weeks. They, they sure as hell don't want to live out there. They want to work on computers. They want to get a good... I love education. Right? Um... There's going to be a time when education really is meaningless, and I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime or not. Um, but capitalism will fall in on itself simply because it has to. Uh, wealth, uh, libertarians might suggest wealth is unlimited or potentially unlimited. That's just not true. I mean, the, the fact of a changing climate, the fact of raping the world for resources, the fact of always having to have more at the expense of relationships, the fact that we must evolve to catch up with technology uh, to avoid killing ourselves because we're so depressed or anxious. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen before there can really be um, a reckoning with our lack of humanity. And that's the only thing that the radical left really should be concerned with is a restoration of humanity a restoration of, of mystery, a restoration of loving kindness, uh, and a restoration of, um, of a labor ethic that uh, marginalizes Marx by saying workers of the world relax when you feel like you need to. Right? We have an economy that won't allow us to relax and Marx would only have us work 10 hours a week. Because production's got to continue <laughs> for the good of the state, right? We all the poor people got to have phones, so we've got to up that production, and we own the resources, so we'll all benefit. We're getting further and further away from being human. Yeah, I just uh, had an interview where we talked about this concept of rewilding and this consumptive patterns of rethinking instead of everyone getting something that maybe nobody has something. Uh, because there's a lot of stuff we don't actually need. That's a scary thought for me. Which part? Not to be able to do this. I mean, I'm not saying not have like podcasts or something, but like, <laughs> just, like just generally speaking, like there's a lot of things. I, you know, I think that might have sounded like I meant like no phones, but like maybe like I don't know one TV or no TVs, like you know whatever. Like it, we don't need the amount of content in things we have and we can only say that we need those things because we're used to them as right. though we didn't exist before them and that's why the collapse of capitalism or state capitalism and socialism needs to occur because we need to rededicate ourselves to a technology that doesn't just serve us but that we can balance with who we are as beings because technology and science has become the prioritized way of knowing things. And as long as that continues to be the case, we will not know ourselves very well. Science can't give meaning. It can only, de you know, it can build a bomb. Science can't decide whether to use social science is not a science. So you've got to attribute uh, meaning to the use of atomic energy. Sure. Yeah. Scott, uh, what if folks enjoyed this conversation, where could they find some more of your work or follow you on some kind of social media or anything like that? Uh, I, my book is called Gospel of the Absurd. It's through Whitfenstock. 
Um, other than that, uh, you can just send me an email. I'd, I'd like to communicate. I'm um, r.scott, S-C-O-T, dot Miller at gmail.com. Um, yeah, I don't do a lot of self-promoting, um, quite honestly, because I'm too busy farming or doing other stuff. So if I promoted some of my stuff, maybe, I don't know, maybe it'd sell, but I'm, I'm kind of destined to be a money loser. You can, you can ask my wife. <laughs> She's been throwing it my way forever. So yeah, that best way is just to email me. I do, we have a farm website. It's called uh, the sandhillproject.com, the sandhillproject.com. I don't really keep it up to date. I've got a Facebook page called uh, Gospel of the Absurd. Great. Scott, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes or support us on Patreon or Venmo. Your support helps keep this project going and allows us to continue building on the work we've done so far. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.